you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, we pray that in the midst of hearing your word, we would pray words that we often say before meals. Uh, Lord, as we consider the great provision that you have provided for us each and every day, every breath, uh, every moment, every hour, uh, Lord, even as we nourish our bodies, we are prone to say, may we be grateful for what we are about to receive. And so, Lord, we pray that in every circumstance, you would teach us to pray, not our will, but your will be done. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. So, last week, you heard me crow about how we at Providence do such a great job at expositional preaching, that it's, it's our preference to preach verse by verse, line by line through a book of the Bible in order to maintain the continuity of the inspired biblical writer. I made a big deal out of this because it is important. So now I have to eat some of that crow because I've been led to do a topical sermon this week. In my defense, I shall at least stick to one text here and preach through it expositionally. So if you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 136. This upcoming week, we are going to celebrate the national holiday of Thanksgiving. Yes, this is a government-instituted holiday, but it's one that I can get firmly behind. In fact, it's my favorite holiday. I love the concept because if we are going to offer thanks, there must be someone to whom we express our gratitude. And here is an opportunity for our families and friends to, to see how grateful we are to the great God Almighty who has sustained us. Thanksgiving in our house begins around the last week of October. Lisa started this tradition of cutting out paper leaves in various fall colors, and after a family meal, each of us, even if friends are invited, must write down something that we're thankful for. And then she places them up on the door that, that leads into our kitchen so we can reflect on our many blessings. This is just one of the ways that we try to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. So you may ask why I feel led to do a sermon on the topic of Thanksgiving. Well, I'm concerned that we in the United States have become a culture that used to be known for always discerning to becoming a culture that is now always criticizing. I find this spirit even within myself. We, we've become obsessed with how others should be contributing to the improvement of our own personal lifestyles. I don't have this, or I don't have that. People are doing this when I want them to do this other thing. Maybe you've heard some of these phrases recently. This would be so much better if they would fill in the blank. My team used to never lose, or we never had poor service like this back in our day. It seems like we've become preoccupied with what we think our spouse should be doing, what we think our government should be doing, what we think our children should be doing, what we think our pastors should be doing, and we just settle into this constant state of discontentment dwelling upon what is not fulfilling us. We rarely think about what we do have, how God has been faithful to us. I remember a time when, when my daughters expressed their great need to, to have cell phones or to upgrade cell phones. In fact, one of the many excuses they would give me is they would say, but all of my friends have cell phones. And I would respond back, then use your friend's cell phones. <laughs> then when they got them, it, it didn't compare to the features that their peers had. 
It didn't have this type of camera, or, or I need to be able to access the internet. It, it can't download music. I can't watch videos on it. I just want to remind them just how powerful their phones are. The, the Apollo 11 computer that, that took us to the moon had 1.1 kilobytes of memory. 1.1 kilobytes of memory compared to the 512 gigabytes of memories that are in the current iPhone. That's seven million times more memory than what we went to the moon with. And yet we forget the miracle of the phone itself. Just being able to communicate with friends and families over a great distance. What a blessing that is to keep in contact with one another. In fact, when I was a young man, if I wanted to use a phone, I had to walk to a particular wall in my house and stand there. I might have had like maybe a six-foot radius with which to, to walk around them. And, and to top it all off, when, when I called my girlfriend Lisa, who lived in the great state of Georgia, I had to pay extra fees for each and every minute that I was on the phone in a conversation with her. There was real investment going on in those relationships in that time. <laughs> when my grandfather worked in the shipyards of Maryland in the Second World War, my, my grandmother could only communicate through mail. Not email, but mail. And it would take at least a, a week for the letters to get back and forth to each other. It's easy to forget the blessing and the convenience of a simple phone, all because we want it better. Now, I'm not against technological advancement. I am for it. I, I like my Kindle. I like my car. I like to be able to fly places rather than drive. That's not the point. But the issue is that we can be so discontent over what we don't have, we don't even enjoy what God has provided us in the present. And if we're to escape this, this state of being overly critical, of being overly disgruntled, disgruntled and, and dissatisfied, of, of being disappointed with life, then we must cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Psalm 136 was written for this purpose. It, it was sung on various occasions, but most likely it would have been sung at Passover when the Jewish family gathered together to recall their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They wanted to express thanksgiving to God for that deliverance. If you will, turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 136. Again, this is 520 of your pew Bible. We can see that the key line of the psalm is that refrain that you just said, for his steadfast love endures forever. The words translated steadfast love, or in some translations as loving kindness, is the Hebrew word hesed. It's a word signifying Yahweh's, the, the, the Lord God's covenantal love towards its people. It's a love that represents grace unmerited, undeserved. It can be translated as a merciful favor. Now, to use a trite illustration, we might compare it of the love from a person to his or her domestic pet. I use this example only to show the contrast in power here. The pet is utterly dependent upon the owner. The pet most likely has times of affections, but still has moments of disobedience in the way that the owner desires from it. And yet the owner still takes care of the pet, still loves the pet, still sees to the pet's needs despite the bad behavior. Now, the nation of Israel was not God's pet. They were his children. And even when they continuously disobeyed his commands, God never removed his covenantal commitments, his promises that he made to his people, his hesed. He loved them not as they were, but in spite of what they were. 
He lavished grace upon grace upon them. But it was really easy for them to descend into this attitude of, well, what have you done for me lately, God? Because they had a time of momentary discomfort or a time of extreme selfishness, they were quick to forget the incredible things that God had already done as a means of his covenantal faithful love. But God knew that this would happen to his finite and sinful creation, and he tried to prepare his people for it. In fact, it's one of the reasons that Yahweh instituted ceremonies like the Passover and the Feast of Booze. In many ways, we could call these the Jewish Thanksgiving holidays. Now, keep a finger here, and if you will, please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is found on page 153 of your pew Bible. This is one of those circumstances that as God had just delivered the Hebrew people out of slavery and for 40 years allowed them to wander in the wilderness and he took care of their every need as they wandered during that time. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land that he was about to give them. Here we have a solemn warning about being so consumed with self-interest that one can forget their God. Look at verse 11 here. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your hearts be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do, do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Therefore, songs like Psalm 136 were a means to remind the covenant people of Yahweh what he had done for them in the past and that he would continue to be faithful to his people in the future. To, to not neglect giving him gratitude knowing that he would always maintain his promises. That's why the refrain here in Psalm 136, you can turn back there with me now, doesn't just say, for your hesed was demonstrated in this way in the past, but rather it says, for your steadfast love endures forever. It was meant to be a memorial testifying that because God blessed them in this way in the past, they could count on his faithful love from him in the future. The psalm can be divided into six parts. First, you have the call to thanksgiving or a testimony here. Second, God's power in creation. Third, his mighty deeds and deliverance and restoring the people. I'm going to put this in two separate sections. We might call this 3A and 3B because they go hand in hand here. Fourth, his incredible grace in caring for Israel. And finally, a concluding call to keep giving thanks to God. Now, I'm going to go through each of these very quickly, and then at the end of the sermon, address how we might use this psalm as a paradigm of celebrating Thanksgiving this coming Thursday. The psalm begins here with three verses commanding Thanksgiving towards Yahweh. When you see the word Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, it signifies the covenantal name of Yahweh, the great I am who I am, the God of Israel. 
The imperative verb here is translated in English as give thanks. That's correct, but in Hebrew, the word means a bit more. It, it carries the thought to confess or to testify to these truths about God in way of thanksgiving. Lisa and I recently visited uh, the Medal of Honor Museum in Chattanooga. I highly recommend it. It's really good. As you got through the ag- exhibit where they portray the individual medal winners, there are recordings of their citations, and in some cases, eyewitness accounts of the bravery that these heroes performed. They are offering testimony of the deeds done, the reason for giving thanks for what these men had done or ladies had done. So this offering of thanks is not private. It's a, it's a public declaration of gratitude and giving the primary reason of why they're grateful was that his covenantal love endures forever. And the first truth that the people declare and give thanks is that God is good. That God is good. Now, if you read on in verses 10 through 22, the psalmist will recount uh, incredible events here where God proved his faithfulness to his people. They are all great acts of mercy, but they were also times of struggle and endurance. He mentioned things like slavery being chased by the army of Egypt, wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, battles in war, and yet the people could look back on such difficulties and still declare that God was good through it all. Paul would say it this way, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. In the next two verses, he says, testify or give thanks that Yahweh is the God of gods, the Lord of lords. Now, this is not to confess that other gods exist beside Yahweh, but it is a statement of superiority. The surrounding nations worship false gods and idols. Israel is declaring whatever you are worshiping is inferior in comparison to Yahweh. Whatever you are serving and making your Lord is inferior to the one true God. We still have modern idolatry. We worship gods of our own devices. Perhaps you've made into a god money and security or a particular relationship, or a sports team, or a political figure, or a certain status among your friends, or or just serving your own flesh and things like drugs or pornography. You will sacrifice anything to acquire your personal God or to serve it. Well, the great God of the universe is superior to any idol that you have within your life. In verses 4 through 9, The psalmist says we're to give thanks to this good God for his mighty power and creation. It is he alone, the all-wise, discerning, and understanding God that speaks the universe into existence. In fact, the the psalmist here pulls specific words from Genesis chapter 1 in the lyrics of his song. Phrases like, made the heavens, separates, or spreads out the waters above the earth, or great lights, sun to rule the day, stars to rule the night. These are the same Hebrew words that are found in Genesis 1. The Israelites always acknowledged that Yahweh was not some supreme deity among other deities like Odin or Zeus. He was the creator of all things. Therefore, we should praise him and thank him for his creation, for the existence that he has provided for us. As the creator, he is due all praise and all obedience and all glory from his creation. And continuing to follow the Pentateuch, the psalmist next moves from Genesis to Exodus and Numbers in verses 10 through 16. He recounts how Yahweh was faithful to Israel in delivering them from slavery in Egypt. 
The first thing that's mentioned in verse 10 was how God spared Israel with the last plague when, when the angel of death took the firstborn male child of every family in Egypt, including that of the household of Pharaoh. This was the event that caused Pharaoh to relent. Not only was the, the final plague that, that caused the king of Egypt to let the Jews go, but the firstborn children of the Jews were spared by the blood of the sacrificial lambs placed above the doors of their house, which caused the angel of death to pass over their homes, which is why they celebrated that event every year. Verses 11 and 12 talk about how God brought them out of Egypt by the power of his strong hand and outstretched arm. This recalls the promise that was made to Moses in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. That verse says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God's mighty hand or his outstretched arm will be a theme that is always sung about within the lore of the nation of Israel. And next, the psalmist recounts in verses 13, 14, and 15 events that occurred in Exodus chapter 14 and 15. This was when Pharaoh's pride overcame him, and to be vindictive, he tried to chase down the freed Israelites in order to destroy them. That was when the Red Sea parted, and Moses led God's people on dry ground through it. And when the army of Egypt tried to follow, God caused the waters to collapse and literally wipe away the entire Egyptian army. On one level, this is spectacular enough. But I don't think we have an understanding of the fear that must have been involved with the Israelites in that moment. We're talking about the best equipped and trained army in the known world descending upon a ragtag groups of slaves that had no military training whatsoever. All they knew how to do was to shepherd sheep, make bricks, and build stuff. Imagine that army coming for you and your children, and in just a minute or two, it was completely annihilated. Would witnessing such an event change you? Would joy and awe come over you, both in the salvation and then also in the destruction of what you just witnessed? God definitely maintained his covenantal love to his people in that moment. Verse 16 remembers the period in Numbers chapters 1 through 20 when the people approached the promised land, their ancestral home, and they did not believe that God could help them conquer the inhabitants that had possessed it in their absence. On the heel of last week's sermon, we might say they had a weak faith and that the Lord gave them a timeout period of 40 years to develop a strong faith. And during this time, they had to depend upon God for food and sustenance, for deliverance from attacking armies and even plagues of snakes. But God was faithful, and he preserved his people. His covenantal love was still upon them. Now, some commentators places verses 10 through 22 as just one section, but I see them as two. While verses 10 through 16 here speak of the exodus in the time of the wilderness, verses 17 through 22 recalls the conquest of the promised land. While in the wilderness, the Lord transformed this group of ragtag slaves into a formidable army. And it's worth noting that, yes, they grew in their skills of warfare, but it was Almighty God who went before them to achieve their victories. Just as verse 10 speaks about God striking down the firstborn of Pharaoh, here Yahweh struck down the kings of the land of Canaan. It was God that conquered. His people were merely the tools or the weapons that he used. However, he was the one that won the battle. And two significant names are mentioned, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. 
These were mighty warlords that possessed the land and were a terror not only to their neighbors, but also to their own people. And yet God disposed of them. And the key point is in verse 21 and 22, Yahweh took these evil king's lands as a heritage or as a legacy or an inheritance, and he gave it to Israel, his servant. Note that servant here is in the singular. This is literally the person of Israel who was also known as Jacob, the descendant of Abraham and Isaac. The name Israel literally means struggle. God would prove himself to his people in the midst of their struggle. 470 years earlier, in Genesis chapter 46, Yahweh made a promise to Jacob when he left Canaan and went down to Egypt due to the severe famine. Now, let me read this to you. This is verses 1 through 4 of Genesis chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. So now in verse 22 of our psalm, that promise has been fulfilled. The people have been restored to their birthright. So both the exodus and the restoration have been memorialized in this song testifying to God's hesed. And then in verses 23 through 25, there's a summation of God's incredible grace to his people. It says, Yahweh remembered them in their low estate. Now this could be translated as remembered us in our humiliation. And note what he did. He delivered us, rescued us from our foes and adversaries. But he doesn't just rescue them to fend for themselves, but in verse 25, he also provides for them. He gives them food. This mention of food is always a reference to God's providential love and commitment to his people. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. It is Yahweh who supplies our every daily need. He is always watching out for his people. Most Old Testament scholars believe this psalm is associated with the meal rituals like the Passover feast. In in sitting down and preparing to eat, one was to thank the God of deliverance and also thank him for his daily provision. We're not just saved to survive, we are saved to thrive in him. And then finally, the psalmist concludes by going back to the original commands of the the, uh, verses of of 1 through 3 here. Give thanks to the God of heavens. This is verse 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven for a steadfast love endures forever. Now get this. This phrase, God of heavens, assigns to Yahweh a universal name of God. It was a title used of God when the Hebrews were in the Babylonian exile. It's used in Ezra 5.12, Nehemiah 4.12, and all throughout Daniel chapter 2. It refers to Yahweh in a way that would have resonated with the nations overall, not just Israel. It refers to Yahweh here in a way that would cause these thoughts to come to mind that that they should be praising him, that the nations of the world should be testifying to the goodness of Yahweh, giving thanks to him of his faithful love to his people. And second... 
This psalm may have been composed during the Babylonian exile here, and as they're enduring, crying out, How long, O God? They would have a hymn that would recount the deeds of God's faithfulness in the past to remind them that he had not abandoned them. I love both thoughts. Invite the nations to to praise Yahweh's faithfulness here. That's something I hope that we're always doing every time we share our personal testimony with, with unbelievers. And also be encouraged when when we're going through our most difficult trials in life. God didn't bring you this far to abandon you. He still loves you. He is still continuing to to, to pour out his covenantal love and faithfulness to you. So this psalm provides us with a paradigm that can can help us celebrate Thanksgiving. It can provide a, a pattern for when we're discontent, when we know we should be more grateful to God. So I'm going to ask you, pay attention to this paradigm. See if you can use this. I'm really going to speak to the heads of the households right now, whoever that might be in your home, that that you take time to reflect on this and lead your family in thanksgiving truly on this day. The first thing he says is, is to begin your prayers this way. Acknowledge the attributes of the God that we serve. Acknowledge the attributes of the gods that we serve. Pull out a journal and record your thoughts if it helps, or better yet, speak these categories aloud to your friends and family. Confess them. Testify to them. Begin by ascribing greatness to God. The Psalms provide helpful language for this. Like, when I use a phrase like God of gods, I'm not thinking about other deities. I am thinking about how I should be seeking satisfaction in life from God alone, not from other things that I might could make into idols. Use language from Psalm 29 or Psalm 96 to provide you with phrases to magnify God. Read through Colossians 1 or Hebrews 1 or John chapter 1 to to get your mind set on the Lord Jesus. Begin by confessing his greatness and his superiority. Second, then begin to look at the created things and acknowledge him for these things. Look at the moon or the stars and, and imagine just how far away they are and that the Lord God allows you to see their glory despite their great distances. Observe sunrises and sunsets and, and give glory to God. Look into the eyes of your loved ones and, and feel their arms wrapped around you and thank God for those arms. And even if your loved one is no longer with you, thank God for the precious moments when they did hold you and held you with those moments that the Lord God gave you a taste of his tender love to be celebrated later again in heaven. Lately, I've been contemplating the life cycles of the seasons, how it's a picture of God's everlasting glory to make all things new from dead things. Give thanks that he is creator God and acknowledge his sovereign right to rule over all things. Then take a few minutes and recall your helpless sinful estate before the Lord Jesus intervened for you. Think about how you were destined to be enslaved to sin, yet God sent a deliverer to rescue you. That Jesus took upon himself our debt of sin and in return gave us his righteousness. Is it not like what what happened with the Egyptian army? Jesus didn't just beat sin back. He utterly destroyed it in an ocean of his blood. Its sting has been removed. 
Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus has completely conquered sin. It is no longer a threat to us. Then take a moment to contemplate your sanctification. While there were effects of residual sin in your life and in this world, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in you. He is sanctifying you to become more like Christ each day. I I hope that you're not the same person today that you were when you first got saved. I look back and I think of who I was pre-1991, and I am appalled at what I see there. A few years ago, I got reacquainted with some old friends. And they shared memories of the old Blair, of things that I did when I didn't know the Lord. I had forgotten those sinful acts. Not because I was using selective memory. I was just having a hard time believing that used to be me. Now I find those deeds that I did then, those things that seemed so attractive to me, are utterly repulsive to me now. Before Christ intervened, I realized I loved my sin. I I relished in it. I loved my sin so much that I would pursue it all the way to hell. But to the praise of the glory of my God, he has changed me. I now love and strive to live for the honorable things, to be like Jesus. This didn't happen in my own power, but in his He has slowly been repossessing the land of my soul, and I am so grateful. So then after acknowledging his greatness, his divine right to rule as creator, his deliverance of your soul, and contemplating your sanctification, how much the Lord has grown you, think of the incredible grace he has shown you each day, the mercy he has provided you in conquering your enemies. Maybe maybe you have a daily battle with depression, or you have a daily battle with a guilty conscience. Maybe your, your marriage was on the brink and the Lord brought about rec- reconciliation. Maybe some conflict between you and a fellow church member was resolved. Perhaps you had a victory in self-discipline or the Lord overcame an illness in your life. Take time to count those many blessings and to give him thanks. And maybe, just maybe, you are at such a low point right now that, that you can't give thanks. It happens at times. The feelings right now that you may be in maybe just feel so overwhelming, it's hard to direct your mind to those wonderful gifts that he's given you in the past. If that is you, then begin your thanksgiving with the simple things. Thank him at least for the food that is set before you right now. Just begin there. Even while you're in this fog of sadness and despair, you can at least acknowledge your daily provision on this day. And then do it again the next day. And then the next, and then the next. And eventually, whatever drove you to despair at a later date, you will be able to recall this time of walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and you will proclaim victories like Sion, king of the Amorites, or Og, king of Bashan and you will declare for his steadfast love endures forever. It will be one more conquered enemy to add to the list of how God's covenantal love 
was wrapped around you. So let me just remind you what a psalm like this is for us. It's practice. It's choir practice. On Wednesday nights, Glenn has the choir come over here to practice what they will be doing for an upcoming Sunday. They do this because they want to offer their best for God on the Lord's day. They want the words to be pronounced correctly, the melody to be in tune, the harmony to be just right and familiar enough that it could be sung with fervor. It's not the actual event, it's preparation for the event. Thanksgiving now is similar to choir practice. The more we give thanks to God, not only do we grow less discontent with our situation, we get better at it. We are preparing ourselves to stand before our great God. Because one day, there's going to to come a time when our bridegroom will come and claim his bride, and the entire church of God will kneel before his throne, and all the nations will be represented. And we will hear thanksgiving in the many accents of the world. French, Spanish, Creole, German, Swahili, Korean, Bahasa, Indonesia, Scottish, and even ancient dead languages like Latin, Attic Greek, and Akkadian. And we will all be saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I want to sing that song now with my entire being like I believe in it. So it will be my honest confession on that day when I stand before his throne with all of you and offer thanksgiving to my great and good and merciful God whose loving kindness endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, we... We are so easily discontent. As you have been working on me in preparation for this morning, I have begun to recognize these conversations that I'm having in my head where I am justifying myself, where I am feeling slighted, where I am just dwelling upon the negative all the time, whether I'm in the shower or in the car or mowing grass, picking up leaves. I can just focus on what I don't have and and how others should be pleasing me in that particular moment. And I'm just focused on the self. Oh, turn my heart, turn my brothers and sisters' hearts towards you. Let us see the great good God who has always been with us, even in the most difficult circumstances in our lives, who has taken the most tragic event in the world, the killing of your son, and brought redemption and victory through that event that allows us to be able to stand before you. Lord, please remind us of that so that we will never doubt your goodness and that we will always offer you prayers of thanksgiving, always offer you praises of thanksgiving, testifying to the good things that you have done And so, Lord, we pray that we would truly be a grateful people. I pray, Lord, that the world that is watching right now will look at us and not see us be a grumbling, griping people, 
but will see us be a people that truly knows our God and knows what has been done on our behalf and that we celebrate it with joy and thanksgiving. May you create in us an attitude of gratitude. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.